to be careful I don't start swimming away. We're on flood warning here at the moment. Welcome to Troublesome Terps, a podcast about the things that keep interpreters up at night. And one thing that certainly kept me up, oh, around four years, five years ago now, that's scary, was a certain word beginning with B. It could either be Brexit or Boris or maybe both. <laughs> but this is our UK interpreting market special. We have two excellent refined um, guests with us uh, this evening. But before we get there, I would like to say that we were allowed to mention Brexit without the klaxon going off. And the one man who is responsible for all of the klaxons and sound effects on this show is our wonderful editor and host, Alexander Drexel. Hello, Alex. Good evening. It's good to see you. Um, moving right along with the introduction of our next wonderful co-host, which would be the other Alex, who joins us from Munich, as always. Good evening, Alex. How are you? Hello. Hey, everybody. It's nice to be here. Uh, on such a special occasion, on the day of the inauguration. So this is when we're recording it. So it's kind of time-stamped. It's kind of a time capsule as well. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, Sarah is unfortunately not here with us today. So shout out to Sarah. Hope you're doing well. We know you are. We are dearly missed. But who is with us today is uh, two fabulous guests. Jonathan already mentioned that we have some fabulous guests on today. First off, we have Kirsty Hamel Moggen, a German-English conference interpreter and uh, lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire and a very dear friend of mine. Kirsty, welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Hi, Alex. Thanks for the invitation to be part of this podcast. I've been listening to it um, for years now, and it's lovely to be on it myself for a change. It's been a long time coming, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> listening to it for years makes us all seem ancient. Well, you know, we are. Time flies when, yep. when you're having so much fun on a podcast. And of course, with us as well is Paul Appleyard, who is a French translator, if I'm not mistaken, and also the chair of the ITI, the uh, Institute of uh, Translation and Interpreting. Welcome, Paul. Hello there. It's a pleasure for me to be here as well. Um, yeah, I actually went to see you when you were recording this in a pub in London many years ago. Oh, uh, and wonderful. after that event, Jonathan Downey came back on the train with me because he was flying back to scotland the following morning and he sat on a train out of london at about half past 11 on a saturday night talking about translation and interpreting theory when everybody else was just <laughs> merry and happy so it's so great he, to though. see you this is so how, was I, he. So it's great this to is see how you. I get merry and happy but i must admit <laughs> apart from that the last time i saw paul in person was it's now I think over two years since I left the ITI board and I had the pleasure of being on the board when Paul first became chair. And I have a theory about uh, translation interpreting associations that chairs alternate between crazy creative geniuses and diplomats who keep things calm again. And I'm pleased to see that <laughs> ITI has picked one of the best diplomats that I know. Here, here. Paul is shaking his head in disbelief. It's all just a front. But we should probably set the scene a little, before, uh, a little bit before we dive in, because uh, you might be wondering why we're doing a UK special. Uh, why, why the UK? Um, why the UK? Um, I think it was because there were quite a few changes happening sort of in, in recent years um, on, that also affect interpreters and translators um, quite a bit. And no, we're not just talking about Brexit and the coronavirus. There were some other changes as well, which we want to get to. So. Uh, 
I don't know if we want to dive right in. Maybe we, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about your day-to-day -day work, and maybe we'll start with um, Kirsty. What what does a normal work week look like for you? A normal working week now or before COVID? Such a thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe in the before. <laughs> well, before COVID, it involved a lot of travel, lots of international travel for my conference work, and a little bit of local travel. Now it's completely reversed. Um, the only travel I do is local and the rest has gone online. So my conferences have all gone online. Um, and really clients that are waiting literally in the starting blocks to go back to face-to-face, -to -face, but are keeping it online because we constantly get extended lockdowns um, in the various countries involved. So um, that's been very much uh, brought into the home, if you like, brought into the soundproof garage conversion <laughs> that, we, that I work from. Um, and... Yeah. The, but the local work has become a lot more face to face because we were actually classed as um, not emergency workers. What were they, what were we called? We were called frontline um, front workers. Yeah, yeah frontline workers, yeah. workers exactly. So um, I'm actually allowed of my, out of my little Mancunian lockdown every once in a while to go to a court, <laughs> similar. <laughs> but yeah, it's changed a lot. Um, my business work, I do some of that outside um, of the office as well because some of the people produce things that are still needed and still allowed to be produced during lockdown, basically. So, mm -hmm. And maybe we can get to the university stuff a bit later on as well. Uh, but first of all, Paul, what, what was the before time sort of normal for you in terms of work? Well, before time, I mean, I, I was introduced as a translator. I do interpret as well, not at your glorious level, uh, but... Um, I get by at a, at a humbler level, uh, he said. Um, so I did travel quite a bit uh, in, in the work that I did for uh, interpreting. And I have always described my work as being a 50-50 split. And that's still true now. Uh, I sit down here in my basement and I was already doing a reasonable amount of RSI work, which obviously has ballooned. Um, and I've been lucky enough to do some voiceover work, which I was doing a bit of before as well. Uh, I'm probably quite lucky with the setup I already had. So I've already got nice big walls of screens and um, ethernets and all the things that people who were just working as interpreters and traveling didn't necessarily have. So I'm quite well set up. I'm still working quite nicely. Uh, there's a little bit of ITI stuff goes on as well. I <laughs> send out the odd tweet, um, have the odd conversation about uh, ITI matters. So I keep myself busy, um, but I try and I try and be sensible-ish. <laughs> so there's probably something to it, right? That that people who also do a lot of translation are maybe have an easier time adapting to the to the new normal, as it were. Is, is that something you would confirm? I would say that for those who have been used to working silently and remotely and alone for a lot of the time, there was very much less of a change than there was for very many other people out there in the rest of the world. But the threats that they suffered in many cases were from outside where the people they were working for were no longer sending them work. So translators in many sectors, arts, tourism, uh, particularly, for example, had no work coming in at all. Mm. But uh, some of the people who I've spoken to have managed to respond to that in a fairly resilient way. Um, they've picked up new skills, new subject areas. Um, and anecdotally, many of ITI's members and people in other organizations are working at a level which is not too dissimilar to where they were before, which is good. 
That's great. Yeah, that's a really great development to see. Um, so, Kirsty, how has it been for you interpreting-wise? Because over here, it's kind of the same to what you were saying earlier. A lot of the stuff has moved online and into different RSI channels, whether it's Zoom, Teams, or any of the dedicated platforms. Work-wise, would you say you're close to a similar... Would you say you're kind of close to your usual levels, or is it still very far off? That's actually a really interesting question. And I've been thinking about it a little bit in preparation because we we did do a lot of online interpreting here before COVID. So um, things like office setup, that was already in place before. And I, I was talking, I'm in various RSI groups um, with colleagues and they were saying the same thing. It wasn't a standing start for us when COVID came because we were already doing a sort of hybrid version, a bit like what Paul said, um, just that I don't have the translation side as well. But what I actually found, which is... Um, probably down to my location to some extent, being Manchester-based, I've actually, since COVID, had more work than I've ever had. I know that sounds insane, but suddenly it doesn't matter that I don't live in London because there is this weird idea that travel for anyone outside of London is much more complicated where I actually only live 10 minutes from the airport and my poor London colleagues spend hours going to different airports spread around London. So in, yeah, exactly. it's really quite an insane <laughs> idea that people have in their heads, but now it doesn't matter. Now I'm just Kirsty, the German interpreter, and it doesn't really matter where I am. So the work is coming in um, quite a lot but also of course there's none of the travel so I'm not losing lesser paid travel time it's being replaced by actual work time um, which of course is is nice and you can do various jobs um, even sometimes in two on a day because of the timings um, I also benefit a lot from the fact that there's a time difference between us and Europe so all of those things play into it so you can be doing a job at nine o'clock German time which is when the English are still asleep <laughs> normal people anyway and um, then you can go on to do something later on in the evening that is a completely different client who happens to have a meeting arranged then so it's it's been it's awful to say because I know some people have really struggled but it's been an okay time for me mm. my work had fallen off the cliff previously anyway there, there was kind of a, a period of just nothing and then towards the end of last year things started picking up and now I've noticed that there seems more interest in talking to interpreters as people who know what they're talking about if that makes sense so you I'm used to the thing of you get an agency call or you get a client call and they're really not they really just want a warm body to sit in a booth. Mm. They don't want advice. They don't want expertise. They just want, can you be in this this booth at this a time? A bum on a chair. They, they want a bum on a chair and they want a voice in their ear. Whereas now I've noticed, especially the people in kind of the events industry that I've been talking to, there's been more of an interest in, oh, do you know how to build an interpreting team and how does this all work and, and what do we need to do? And actually, I, this sounds strange, but I've noticed clients listening more than they used to. I can totally second that. I had yeah. a similar experience actually just today um, because, and I think it's because clients are using technology more themselves. So they they are getting in touch more. We're speaking more. We're speaking on Skype in preparation of a conference and similar. And we are becoming a person rather than that <laughs> bum on the seat in the booth. And it, I'm finding that I'm having far more com conversations about how to set this up and helping clients mm. set it up on technology, but then getting much more of a sort of almost personal relationship with them because now it's it's actually thanking not the German booth, but thanking Kirsty and whoever else is in the booth with her. And I'm finding that's a definite shift that we've recently seen. And also things like 
really basic things. Like I had a, a rather expensive consulting project recently. I actually had my most expensive consulting project on record not so long ago. And there was a, a technical issue. Some of the speakers basically sounded like Daleks, if anyone's ever watched Doctor Who. But because I could tell by listening to them what was happening, I knew who to email and say, you know, this is going on. And finally, I found someone who cared enough to talk to the speakers and say, all right, we, we can get them to fix that. That's easy. And it wasn't anything terribly hard or technical. It was just they'd forgotten to plug a mic in and they were using an internal mic. But because I realized that, okay, if we can talk about this as this is better for the people attending the event, they're like, oh, you, how come you know about sound stuff? We didn't think interpret. And it's you know, stuff that we've known for years, but suddenly clients are listening because they don't want to spend six hours of their day listening to people who sound like Doctor Who extras. Mm-hmm. I yeah, find exactly. that clients now sometimes also come on come online and they've had their first disastrous meeting on Zoom, first time they've used it. And then the second time they go, look, I've got a headset and it's, <laughs> and it's really good. <laughs> it's really rather sweet. <laughs> Baby steps, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Um, You've, Kirsty, you've just alluded to uh, um, sort of things happening even uh, earlier already, and maybe we can, you know, go back even a little bit further than that um, to changes that happened in the UK even sort of before Brexit and, and everything else happened. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think um, ITI was also quite involved in. I guess sort of making sure that those changes are not, not as bad as they may have been otherwise. I'm talking about the, um, like the handing out of contracts by the, I think it was the Ministry of Justice at the time. So mostly for legal interpreting, I think there were quite a few sort of big changes and work got sort of uh, outsourced to big ag agencies who um, had databases with uh, pets in them that supposedly spoke Spanish and stuff <laughs> like that. So I don't know if, if you can sort of give people a little bit of an overview of what, what happened there um, back in the day. Paul, you might be best um, equipped to talk about the ITI Probably side a big of it. Topic. I don't know. <laughs> it, it is, where'd you start? Mm. It, it goes back quite a long way. One of the interesting things about us as an organization, he said, avoiding your question really, so that I don't have to, <laughs> is that we have a corporate memory or a, 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 an institute memory that changes as people on the board go on and I'm looking at other people in the screen here who've been on the board at certain points in the past when um, when this was a very big issue. So you're absolutely right. It was, it was a very, very bad situation. Uh, and at the time, ITI worked with what you would call other industry stakeholders, if we start going into jargon, who advocated and continue to advocate for the situation to change. And there are some very, very good speakers who fight very hard for the interpreter corner in that sector. And I'm thinking about high-profile people like Mike Orloff, for instance, at the NERPC organization, who continue to agitate for that. But they're working in the situation as it is today rather than what you were alluding to, which is something that happened a long time ago and which has had a massive impact on members of ITI and members of other organizations. And there are still people who are suffering from that every day in the work that they are no longer getting. And we can continue to support them, but um, but but organisations working in a uniform way to try and persuade the government, the powers that be, the different people who set up new framework contracts, who continue to advocate. Sorry, they are continuing to advocate for this to be a situation that is much improved. Um, but you are continually pushing against a door that is being pushed back mm. from the other side by people who don't really understand and still don't understand the situation. 
So what happened basically was, like before, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, courts and police would work with, I suppose, lists of interpreters mm -hmm. who they had worked with in the past or that were supposedly qualified or hopefully qualified. That's right. And then at some point, the ministry said, no, that's all too expensive, too, too complicated. We're just going to outsource that to one of those big agencies. And that's when it all went pear-shaped, in, in my understanding. That's absolutely right. And the claim at the time was that cost wasn't the, uh, over the, the overriding factor from the point of view of the government agencies assigning it. But obviously what happens, and we've seen it again in many other uh, situations in life recently, cost might not be the overriding factor at the beginning of the process, but as soon as you have middlemen and middle women and middle dogs and middle cats all taking their little cut along the way, um, what happens at the end of the day is that the professionals who are used to earning a good wage or wage long term, uh, a good income, and who have been training themselves for years to work in that sector, all of a sudden found themselves in a position where they could not afford to work and pay the bills that they'd been used to paying. And that was when so many people left. I mean, Kirsty was at the coalface then, mm -hmm. saw, it from, saw it much more closely than I did because it was anecdotal because I would never have worked in that sector, going back to what I said about my lack of qualifications and experience in that area. So I wouldn't do it. And I wouldn't do it now. One thing that, that, that strikes me, and I think, I, I think Kirsty will agree with this, is that in the UK we've been fighting this issue of commoditization of interpreting, where anywhere that purchases interpreting as a large service, you know, a, a three years at a time, will tend to want, and it's going back to the warm bodies thing, you know, can we fulfill 90 whatever percent of assignments? And w there's a, a rule in business, I can't remember who said it, but whatever you measure gets done. And so I know a business strategist who goes into businesses instead and says, be very careful what you measure, because if you don't measure it, you're not going to do it. And if you're measuring the percentage of fulfillment and you're not measuring the percentage of successful assignments, then that then you prejudice warm bodies over good interpreters. And actually, there's beginning to be a swing in Scotland. A couple of years ago, I was involved in a project with Harriet Watt University where uh, in sign language interpreting, which I need to be careful because that paper is currently going to be under review in a couple of weeks, but showing where there are there is room for you know getting away from commoditization and working with the organisations. But the way we got away with doing that was working with the police and NHS directly, mm. without any middlemen, without any outsourcing. We did a project with them and a Scottish government agency directly. But we have to say that Scotland has a different legal system from yes. Wales, so just to point that out, yeah. The general feeling, and I, I, Paul and Kirsty can correct me on this, is that generally speaking, it seems easier to get purchase and movement in Edinburgh in the Scottish Parliament than it does in Westminster at the UK level. <laughs> Kirsty's going, mm. I, I can't judge really. That's why I'm sort of <laughs> holding back. I don't have enough background knowledge for that. I can't judge what Scotland's doing in any detail. Moving slowly. <laughs> yeah. But I think that the whole idea, and I think that sort of speaks to bigger trends in, in the industry, the whole idea of commoditization of interpreting is maybe something we can explore a bit more. Um, because I think the, the phrase gets used a lot, but I'm not sure 
we all necessarily have the same understanding of it. So, mm. I mean, in, in this case, for example, with the legal sector, you could say that it means that, um, I guess, local police officers or, or courts no longer have this direct relationship with interpreters they've been using for several years or maybe even decades. And they know, okay, this is Miss X or Mr. Y and they, they work well and they, they have these languages. But then again, I think it's also difficult for courts and and. Um, police forces, I think at least that's what I've heard from Germany, is that it's very often difficult to to find interpreters who have the right languages because, of course, the demand for languages keeps changing. I mean, new languages sort of come into the mix, um, and it's just difficult for them to go through an entire list of individual people and asking, and, you know, maybe somebody's not available because they have to take care of uh, uh, of children, or, you know, they can't go there in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, th- I think it's interesting to look at it from both sides, but, um, yeah, maybe there, are, maybe there are other meanings to this whole commoditization uh, thing as well. I think the implementation across the UK was quite different as well in that you had certain courts, like we have two Crown Courts in Manchester, and they were really on top of their own little list and they had whiteboards with business cards on them, etc. But then there were others that weren't coping as well. And you can um, see that, you know, they might not have hours to ring round because the first five interpreters they ring aren't available. So you can see where the ideas come from, but a simple register would resolve that to some extent. Um, But it needed manpower. That was what the problem originated from, really, that they said there wasn't enough man hours um, to ring round interpreters for every lit- literally every individual court with their local interpreters. But but that it worked well because they knew the good ones and they kept bringing back the good ones. So from our viewpoint, it was nice because you knew you would get that regular work. And are there any formal requirements? Do you have to have some kind of certificate or uh, do you have to go through an exam to be able to work for courts and the police? You do. For the legal side, you have to be on the National Register of Public Service Interpreters, which um, is uh, the requirement to actually go to court and interpret. Having said that, um, in the early days, not all languages were available on the list. So um, that's sort of grown now more and more with qualified rarer languages as well. So it's quite an extensive... Um, list now. That's reflects on a process that I know ITI was going through, Paul, where it's comparatively easy to assess someone with a, a common language. But when you get someone in with a language where ITI doesn't yet have an assessor, I know ITI had to go through that of, oh, we need to rebuild, we need to build a system to make. I wonder if there's a wider issue in the UK that the languages that are in demand and that are being used aren't necessarily the ones we're used to. I don't know. Have you seen that in ITI with a, a growth in what we used to call minor, well, what I used to call minor languages, which probably aren't so minor now. It's <laughs> an interesting question. I mean, if you look at the languages spoken across the country now compared to 20 years ago, you can see that uh, Polish is the second language spoken in the UK now. And maybe 20 years ago, it was right down at the bottom of a pile. And um, the attitude is that people who speak foreign languages speak English and French and German and Spanish, no, maybe English, not foreign, but there's always been the uh, the assumption that we don't speak Urdu and Gujarati and all the other languages that are community languages. So you've got two different levels of conversations anyway in the way the languages are, are approached, um, regardless of how they're approached by a professional organization, um, which goes down to attitudes and actually gets back very, very quickly to uh, questions of racism and the way that people are accepted into their communities. 
which goes far beyond the remit of this discussion and anything else. What was quite interesting, though, was that that very early on, the London um, police had um, very good vetting systems for very rare languages, because I was involved in that way back when, I'm showing my age now, but um, they were literally assessing people for languages such as Twi, um, Lingala and various others. So that was always the, the other exam that you could do, um, the Met Police test for the so-called rarer languages, as we called them then. So it was actually, I was always quite impressed um, at just how many languages could be covered and examined um, for interpreters to get a qualification. And we did, I have to say, we did have a system that was second to none at the time before all of this happened. And people do say that the UK um, PSI system was very advanced um, compared to other countries um, across the globe. That's interesting because, I mean, the the, the UK doesn't have the doesn't have the best reputation when it comes to foreign language learning and um, doesn't have an awful lot of universities teaching interpreting in the first place, uh, community interpreting, conference interpreting, whatever it may be. So I'm wondering where do all those people come from and how do they get their qualifications, especially for these quote-unquote smaller languages? Uh, the, the London um, Metropolitan Police Test at the time was the way that they could get these qualifications. And actually, I, I remember um, being involved in an exam where they had literally drafted someone in from Kenya for one of the language wow. assessments. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, I think he worked for the BBC World Service, was actually qualified as an assessor. And I remember thinking, Cracky, they're going to great lengths to get someone who speaks the language at mm. a you know, a very good level, both languages at a very good level, who is then going to assess the candidates for those particular languages. So, you know, when the finances are there, there are ways and means of doing this and implementing <laughs> it. They don't have to be local. <laughs> yeah. And and the candidates, how, where did they get their interpreting skills from? How did they get their training? Was it just training on the job? No, the no, they, they did preparatory courses for the exam that existed at the time. So there were different um, assessments put on by different organizations, teaching centers that would um, give them the skills, for example, to learn whispered interpreting and consecutive note taking skills. I remember teaching one of those courses once. And yeah, so there was a lot in place that people could do for the rarer languages. And it is kind of funny, I mean, as a consultant now, I'm realising the languages that I thought were easy to find are actually harder than you think. I, I don't want to name a language, but, you know, there, there have been languages that have come up recently and I thought, oh, that'll be, and I've said to the client, oh, that, that, that'll be no problem, I'll go and get someone for it. And, you know, if you're a consultant and say your top two interpreters for a certain language, a certain language aren't available, you can it can become difficult very quickly. And there, there's one particular language where I have two people who are always at the top of my list and it just so happened that one time they weren't available. And that's that that's when things get, get tricky. And when you when you rely on organizations like ITI, the, the MITI assessment is is fantastic and is only getting better. And so that you know then that you get that you're gonna get quality. And also if they're MITI, I I know I can talk to someone else and say, Do you know so and so? I'm just going to take that opportunity and do a hard segue. <laughs> Since if you've ever listened to the show, we're, we're announcing segues. And um, I think Sarah started that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think Sarah's right at that. But I think there's two big sort of kind of elephants in the room when it comes to, to the UK and the market and how it's changed at the moment. And one of them is, of course, Brexit. And the other one is COVID, which, of course, affects all of us. But um, I think if we want to go, because this was a relatively UK-specific topic where you guys were just talking about the NERPC and the change of public service interpreting, different contracts being handed out. So if we want to stick with more of a UK focus for now and talk about Brexit first and how that's kind of affected um, the market in the UK and kind of ITI's involvement and how your individual markets have changed, but also what kind of bigger impact it's had on the overall market. And I think I want to start with Paul on this one um, because, you know, as the chair of ITI, I'm sure you've had your hands full in kind of... <laughs> no, okay, empty hands. Hands, hands are empty right now. <laughs> hands are empty. Um <laughs> But I'm sure ITI has had lots of inquiries in how it can support sort of a post-Brexit um, translation and, and interpreting market, or at least their members, in securing their, their work. I'm just guessing here because I have no idea, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> this is usually what, what professional bodies try to do. Usually. Well, why would we buy like any other professional body? No. <laughs> um, it's been a two-way process um, because one of the one of the biggest challenges with Brexit was uh, Donald Rumsfeld's famous known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Mm. Um, and right the way through the last year, the last couple of years, we've had speculation. We've had months and weeks and years of worry about taxation, getting work, how are we going to do this and that and the other. And Working as translators and interpreters, it's been very concerning uh, for each of us as individuals. For us as an organization at ITI, it's been very difficult because we've had, we've had people ever since the referendum coming up to us and saying, well, what are you going to do about it? What can you tell us about? And we've had to say, as soon as we know something, we will tell you. Um, yeah. And then... As information has become clearer, we've worked with other organizations, we've put out webinars with ATC, we've um, had presentations by people with Doug Lawrence, and we did, for instance, just before Christmas, we did a webinar with uh, the CIOL on uh, VAT, which was a very specific subject in which we already knew there was quite a bit of information. And then... We have all of the information that we do have on our website, which we update regularly. Um, but then the deal was signed on Christmas Eve at sort of one second to midnight. <laughs> oh, and, nice. and what we then saw, what we, we, we are really, really lucky at ITI because we have a wonderful community of members. It isn't a top-down organization. I might be chair, but that doesn't mean that I'm at the top of the pile and you go all the way down and then at the bottom you've got the little members. We're all we're a very flat structure. I'm a member of ITI, and every other member of ITI is a member of ITI to the same extent as me. And over the Christmas holiday, over the Christmas weekend, some members went out and they read that agreement, all one million five thousand zillion pages of it. Uh, and Kim Sanderson, who I get shout out to, yeah, happy holidays, Kim read. Sanderson, shout out to yes, Kim. big shout um, out. <laughs> put out um we, we spoke about it over the christmas weekend and then she put out a summary of the relevant bits uh, and then wow. another member popped up emma gledhill popped up and translated the legalese into legible understandable english so those members did that off their own bat and they shared that across social media with everybody out there and that's iti members but obviously anybody else who can read it so people across many organizations, but based in the UK who are concerned by it, 
Um, so yeah, well, ITI is working, but also it, each member is working on the same subject. Sorry, I got enthusiastic there. Well, that is definitely something for to breath. be enthusiastic about. That's really, yeah. honestly, yeah. some great member, membership engagement, I would say. It really took the sting out of things. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. I was just going to say, it kind of reminds me of when GDPR rolled around and everybody was, oh my, oh my God, this big <laughs> thing is happening. Nobody knows what's going on. And, you know, the professional associations pretty much everywhere in Europe stepped up and, mm -hmm. you know, helped sort things out, which was great to see. And, um, yeah, it seems uh, it was kind of the same thing in this case, which is great. I mean, I think, to be honest, from my reading of it, and I need to go and read the summaries but from my reading of it, it seems like, in a sense, UK interpreters are going probably going to be okay. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of probabilities and a lot of maybes. And I think, to be honest, to even seeing some of the trade people, trade experts on Twitter, they're saying there's still a lot of things to be ironed out. We don't know all of the details yet. Um, but you have this split in the UK between interpreters in the UK who have EU passports, like Paul and Kirsty and interpreters in the UK who only have UK passports like me yeah. and the rules there are going to be different and mm -hmm. it's like we don't want it to you know we've talked on this podcast before about how an interpreter is an interpreter and there's no levels in interpreting but realistically post-Brexit there's going to be a two-tier existence but there seems to be all sorts of ifs and buts and maybes. And, you know, uh, one trade expert was saying that interpreting is usually what's called, the, I think, is an allowed service or something, which means that you can go abroad to interpret and that's fine. It's very, very specific. I can tell you because <laughs> I opened it up before we got it. The VAT guidance, Places of Supply of Services, VAT Notice 741A, paragraph 12.6. I opened it up because I knew you'd want me to read it out to you. But paragraph, and I've just closed it, paragraph 12.6 says... Services of consultants, engineers, consultancy bureau, blah, 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 wide range of services. And then it says written translation services or interpreted services, which do not take a place at an event conference. So they've been very specific and they've actually mentioned event conferences. Now, linguistically, I'm sure that a conference is completely different from a convention, which is completely different from a trade fair. And a conference can be a very, very specific and narrow narrowly defined event which says conference on the ticket mm. um, but you've got to be quite careful about where you supply the service and that's regardless of having an eu or a non-eu passport because that's from a business point of view where your business entity is based and particularly if you're a company like i am uh, and your vat entity is based mm -hmm. One of the trade experts was saying that interpreters will be allowed to fly over to conferences without uh, to interpret a conference without a visa but yeah, that was the big discussion on Twitter the, the, the other day. The, yeah. the TAC rules, it seems to be the VAT, the VAT rules are going to be quite complicated. Um, and it's one of these kind of, we are not accountants, we are not lawyers, please consult one. But <laughs> it's... For sure. No professional it, advice given. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it does seem to be that... I mean, it, it's a strange thing. Is I don't know, Kirsty and Paul, if you agree with me, but I think remote interpreting has at least temporarily scrambled the market anyway. So what happens when conferences get back up and running? You know, I know the event sector are asking, you know, what's the deal with people coming to the UK for conferences? Um, traditionally, a lot of interpreters in the UK have not been UK natives. The government immigration guidance 
does not seem to allow someone to come to the UK for the purpose of starting a business. They have to come with an employer to, to get a work visa. So to, I, I honestly think the supply side is going to be the, the biggest issue. Um, the, the, the UK interpreters going out, I think, seems to be resolvable, but the supply side, the supply of interpreters to the UK could be an issue coming up very soon. No, you're absolutely right, unfortunately, because of the fact that there are minimum income requirements. And we have been advocating very strongly for translation and interpreting not to be included in those minimum income requirements because many people who've come over in as translators and interpreters have come over speculatively. They've either come over because they've fallen in love or they've come over because they like the sight of London and they've always wanted to go to London and then they get there and they never leave. Um, but they're going to have to demonstrate that they have an income above, I've just forgotten the figure, is 22,500 or 22,600 pounds minimum income a year. Uh, and that's demonstrably not possible in an industry like ours uh, unless things change massively. We need to find somebody who's going to set up a big translation and interpreting company and employ all these people. And that's not going to happen at that sort of wage either. They're certainly not going to sponsor hundreds of people to come in. That's the biggest challenge. Sorry. Is that going to have a big effect on PSI work, Kirsty? You know, I, how do non-native, non-UK native PSI interpreters end up here? Um, a lot of them, well, for various reasons, I, I would be speculating, but a lot of them are actually um, giving up working as public service interpreters. And a lot of my colleagues have returned home disillusioned with the situation in the UK. So we've lost some very dear colleagues who have just said, I don't want to be here anymore, which has been really sad for the profession or they've left the profession, not the country as well but there's been a bit of both and it's been a really sad development because these are highly competent people that I've you know often worked in the court next door to theirs and spent nice lunch breaks with them and you just think you know it's a, the the profession is actually um, losing a lot of quality on that basis. Now, how many of them were perhaps planning to go home anyway and that was the final push? I don't know. That would be speculation on my part. But a lot of people are leaving the PSI profession for reasons of pay and for reasons of, of going back home to their home countries, which makes things rather difficult. I don't think there's any political awareness of what a shortage of interpreters and translators would mean to the UK. Um, certainly, the UK government is very keen on its global Britain agenda. And the reality is, unless the immigration rules work, that agenda doesn't work. Because if, for example, you have a shortage of, I don't know, interpreters in conference interpreters in Dutch, then that puts a strict limit on the conferences that you can run in the UK unless you say, okay, I mean, you could say, okay, we'll fly the interpreters over, but that still runs into immigration working rules and that makes it more expensive to have Dutch interpreters because you've got to put flights and accommodation on top. Um, there's not an awareness of the fact that, A, you're going to make interpreting more expensive if interpreters are smart because we'll realise there are fewer of us, and B, you might have events that just can't go ahead you might lose you know delegates coming from a, a country because sorry we can't have the interpreters for them and to put it bluntly if a conference doesn't go ahead it's one thing but if a massive drugs trial involving several different languages doesn't go ahead the criminals yes. you know criminal justice system is going to for seriously sure. suffer yeah and that's what we're talking about 
this is often swept aside because yeah, um, some parts of the profession are very uh, focused on the event conference, as you call it, Paul, or as the Brexit document called it. Um, but I had two thoughts on, on what what you just said. Is first of all, uh, the whole Global Britain campaign strikes me as, as something that is very much done from the point of view that um, that global. I mean, the, the Global Britain should, of course, speak English. So other languages don't really seem to play a role. That is one thing. And we just discussed about, you know, English uh, and the elf on the shelf in the episode before. Um, and, and the other thought could be a segue maybe to, to um, back to, to COVID because, I mean, a lot of people might say, well, if the Dutch interpreters can't travel to the UK for the conference, why don't we just uh, put them in a hub and they just uh, join the whole thing through an RSI platform? I'm not saying I'm, I'm advocating for that, but you know, a lot <laughs> yeah, of people yeah, are sure. going to say that, obviously. Yeah, I, I was going to say, where's Sabine Brown when you really need a quote from her? She, <laughs> she's like the U, one of the UK experts on, on, on remote interpreting. But yeah, I think, Kirsty, you, you've got a great point that the UK hasn't looked after the languages side of its criminal justice system. And that's only going to make things harder. And yeah... <laughs> Theoretically, some things can be covered by remote, but I'm not sure would the drugs would they be happy with a drugs trial to say, "Oh, we can't get UK interpreters. We're going to have to remote them in from from Amsterdam." I can't see the courts being happy to let that slide. Interestingly, <laughs> I think COVID is making things change quite a bit. I am now going to courts regularly, where suddenly there are screens everywhere, there are cameras everywhere. There's not just the one camera facing at the one person who might need to see something or be seen. Um, I actually ended up going to court recently, um, fully kitted out with my COVID equipment. Um, and I was the one in the court and the witness was the one over in Germany being brought in via remote link and the systems are working so much better now. So there is a definite shift to online, not because they perhaps necessarily wanted to, but because they quite simply had to, to make the service um, continue. And I think that is going to show a very big shift. And I'm not 100% sure which way it's going to go, because now that in some respects they've sniffed how um, equipment can work and they've had a little bit of a taste of it, I do wonder if a lot of things are not going to go back completely to face-to-face. -to -face. Because think about it, bringing in a German witness in the past to court has meant flying them in, flying them in for a range of days because you can't determine which day they might be giving their evidence. So they're in hotels for several nights. There's flights from Germany. There's interpreters on standby. All of that doesn't matter because they're going to get a 10-minute call, 10-minute advance warning call at home. The interpreter will be booked for that day. And, you know, it's happening the same way. So I, they're not the same way, I have to say, because there's nothing the same as being next to the person, reading their body language, seeing their facial expressions and hearing everything they're saying very clearly. But um, in view of how many corners are cut nowadays on various things, that could be one of those corners that might well be cut in future. I'm afraid. Yes. Mm. What, what are your thoughts, Paul? How do you see... I know kind of predicting the future is always a mug's game, but are there any trends that you see? You know, I, I'm looking at it and seeing we're going to, we could get a real supply issue. Are there any other trends that you're seeing at the ITI level that you think this is coming around the corner and we need to do something about it? I would say that the interesting thing is that we are seeing a professionalization across the industry, um, which I don't really see where the end point of that is, but you are going to see 
Uh, I mean, ITI today, just just today, or we even announced it yet. We have now. <laughs> Corporate accredited language service providers. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, it is. It's on the website. You can see it now. But that is a membership category for businesses or organizations who've been a corporate LSP and they're demonstrating a commitment. And we have announced that so that we have people who are working as service providers um, are able to demonstrate their professional approach. And I think you're seeing a professional approach becoming more and more widespread in many ways. And you're seeing that confirmed in the fact that organizations like ITI, which are focused on the professional side of the language sector are ticking along quite nicely at the moment. Um, so professionalization, I would say, is something to watch out for. We obviously have all been professionals for a very long time, but we're going to see it becoming more of a recognized thought and more of a recognized concept. On the part of interpreters as well, I would say, yep. because um, when I think back to the beginning of my career, when I was very keen to do CPD, what was on offer was, um, you know, restricted by just, for one thing, the, the physical possibility of getting training, going to London and getting training. It was often London-based. Um, and now there is access to so much. If I want to learn about a new platform, if I want to learn about a new way of doing my bookkeeping even, it's very quick to access. and it, puts a lot of pressure on interpreters to keep on top of things, but it, it does upskill and it does professionalise the profession as a whole. Um, so you can't really get away with not being on top of things anymore. And, and I think that's good for the profession. It's definitely improving the quality of the work that we as interpreters are delivering. I've noticed that and I've noticed a big jump in interpreters wanting to be seen to be on top of things as well. Um, and approaching things in a very professional way. And yeah, yeah, Paul, that, that's a trend that I hadn't thought about, but it's a, a really growing one. I think it is. And I'm going to pick up on the, the CPD thing again, because, well, pick up on the CPD and the fact that people are doing it. But then, as you're saying, Jonathan, people are putting on social media that they're doing it. And there are discussions about CPD. And, you know, I, I retweeted somebody earlier on who was talking about the fact that you can watch foreign language, or sorry, source language, uh, television programs or films and then you can put it on your cpd and you record, record things like that as well as watching the webinars about bookkeeping and swinging back to iti and waving the iti flag again because i think that's what i meant to do with it <laughs> um we've got our library of webinars which is much larger than it was several years ago, but it is also much more professional again. I've come back to the word professional. So it is the stuff that Kirsty's mentioned, uh, and much of it is free to members. So if you're not a member, join and watch them. We had a little competition this year, a little COVID competition, because um, <laughs> some of us interpreters were seeing how quickly we could fulfill the minimum number of hours for CPD on our <laughs> ITI CPD record. <laughs> and we that were really so quick. Yeah. <laughs> I cheated. I decided. I decided that being chair meant that after 30, 30 hours after the start of the new year, I would have done my 30 hours, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I suspect is a bit dishonest. <laughs> But I did it so I could get the logo on my uh, on my profile. Fair enough. It's a nice perk to have as a chairman. <laughs> I need to go. I need to go and fill in the forms. I I often forget to fill in the forms until I get the reminder email. One more trend that I've noticed. So we talked about commoditization, and that's a trend. And I've been talking a little bit recently about the need to scale interpreting. And I think this talks to what Christie's been talking about and, and what Paul's been talking about. We need to work out how do you get professional interpreting at scale. But I'm seeing a trend in interpreting that you know a few years ago you would hear 
top translators talk about how they spent a lot of time going to client events. And I got inspired once by a talk by a lady, I don't know if anyone in this call has heard of her, a lady called Chris Durbin, who might be familiar to some um, very famous French translator, certainly famous in the translation sphere. And I started going to events aimed at clients. And the first one I went to, uh, I walked up to a stand and they'd ne- despite the fact that they'd had like 10 events a year with interpreters, they'd never met one in person. And the last one that I went to before COVID lockdown, I counted six interpreters that were there. And there seems to be more and more interpreters saying, well, actually, if I'm going to be working with manufacturers or IT people, I really should be subscribing to their magazines. I really should be tra- you know, learning their stuff as well. And it's been encouraging to come across more and more interpreters. There's a lady recently who's doing a diplomatic interpreting and is really getting into how diplomacy works. And I thought that's encouraging because that's us picking up from our translation brethren and sistren, I don't even think that's a word. Um, it is now. What it means to be a professional, and it doesn't just mean being on top of your consex skills, it means being on top of the area that you're working in. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it as well. I, I just recently had a client say to me, um, do you know, I think you know more about my business than I do because you'd interpret for every different department. And it's actually true. I probably do. But they appreciated the fact that it didn't matter which department they stuck me in that needed an interpreter, I would be able to deal with it. And that is what they do appreciate. They don't just want a sort of mouth on a stick to come in and say it in the other language. They want an in-depth understanding. And that involves machinery and systems and God knows what so and that's where again full circle the cpd is extremely helpful because where am i going to find out how a paper production machine works if i don't go away and do some cpd oh, i love a good paper mill it's <laughs> a very specific example no, but yeah. I, I love a good manufacturing interpreting job because engineers say stuff straight yeah and True. you know you, you do a factory tour and they're not trying to please anyone they just go look big mm. machine goes boom yeah. but i mm. like that kind of interpreting where you get a guy proud of the machine or a lady proud of the machine that she built herself that's you clearly haven't met german engineers yet they <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> love to get out the big words um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I wanted to talk about one one more thing, which um, uh, I think I, I forewarned you, Kirsty, a little bit early on um, about training. And first of all, I'd like to know a little bit um, about how it changed due to COVID, or maybe how it, how it has changed in in recent years with technology and everything um, for you. How how has that sort of mixed things up in, in education? I don't know if I'm the best example because we actually, well, just your <laughs> yeah. Um, why I'm saying that is because we actually started using remote simultaneous interpreting platforms in class before COVID, thank God, because then when COVID came, we were ready for it and we just transferred completely to online. But because, as I'd said earlier, um, RSI was a phenomenon that was very present um, in the UK way before COVID, we'd we'd already realized that we needed to bring the technology providers on board. We needed to get access to different platforms um, for the students. So that was an integral part of the course. Um, and it stood us in very good stead when um, we got COVID um, coming to the UK. And, um, you know, we've not looked back really. It's a shame really. This year, it's almost the reverse. We've got students who are really good at RSI and they they haven't seen a booth from the inside yet. So we're going to have to do that as soon yeah. as they let us back in into our wonderful interpreting suite. But um, that's been sort of 
quite a lucky development really for us because we we bought into the technology side straight away because we just realized we, we're all practicing interpreters that might be an important aspect that sort of fed into it we all the trainers at our university at UCLan we are all practicing interpreters as well so we knew that there were both sides to the coin and we wouldn't want to send our students into the wild west without all the preparation they can get so and we've the perfect example here. I'm just going to yes, very true. Because <laughs> I was just going to say, I was just going to jump in here as well because it's actually true. Because I studied under Kirsty, and I think I actually undersold you earlier because you're not just a lecturer; you actually developed the course at UCLan. And back then, even before anybody was seriously thinking about RSI, we were doing some very hands-on stuff. So we interpreted every single day for at least, I think, two hours. And that's a very smart thing to do to actually go into RSI before everybody else, before you have to do it, i.e. before everybody else does it. Um, I just really have to laugh at what you just said that there's some people who just haven't seen the inside of a booth but are now expert RSI interpreters. That is such a 2020 thing. Um, totally is, yeah. <laughs> yes, I agree. Fun. And they will get to see the inside of a booth yet. <laughs> Otherwise, I will not let them out into the world, that's for sure. But I just have to get but, rid of COVID now. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Um, but I think coming back to the supply and demand discussion that you guys were having all over the board, um, it's interesting to think about the university at the moment being very much RSI focused because, again, I remember back when I was there, you know, there were different sort of kind of waves of countries coming in. You know, there was a big Polish wave when I was there, and then there was a big Chinese wave the year after I left. And it's interesting right now because it's it's much more accessible if everything is kind of online anyway. So do you see any sort of change in in, in demand for, for interpreter training at the university or generally if you've heard of any other institution? Um, I'm not sure about the change in demand for languages because there is a sort of tradition of certain languages going to certain universities even. So there are certain universities that have a larger Chinese cohort, others are more experts in Arabic. Um, so I don't think that's changed so much yet, but you have a point it could do because it's so much easier to put things on if you're doing them remotely because you're not dealing with visa issues, etc. And bearing exactly. in mind that European students could potentially in future pay international student fees at UK universities, that might well be something that is envisaged for um, approaches to courses in future because they don't necessarily have to be physically present. Now, big caveat on my part, I do not want a conference interpreter trained who doesn't know what the inside of a booth looks Fully. like, <laughs> because then they're not trained as far as I'm concerned. So um, it would have to be a hybrid, but there's a lot to be said for a hybrid approach. You know, hmm. um, you could then even use the, you know, this aspect of them being in both countries. I trained in Germany and in the UK as part of my interpreter training, and I really benefited from it. I mean, I was brought up bilingually by an English mum, but I didn't know when I came to the UK how to flag down a bus. I stood at the bus stop like a lemon, waiting for this bus to stop, and I didn't realise I had to stick my hand out. That so, you know, it's, it's everyday skills that are useful for interpreting <laughs> that you do get when you go to the country. So there's a lot to be said for changing your approaches to fit in with the circumstances, I would say. Has ITI been enabling, because I know ITI has quite a lot of university members and has actually got a thriving research network as well. Has ITI been encouraging any sort of kind of work between the universities or is that an area that you've just let the training providers find their own way in, Paul? Uh. <laughs> 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 um, they talk to each other. Um, 
and we we do have our academic members and they talk to each other we don't have a formal network for it apart from the research network but the research network is very active my wonderful predecessor sarah uh set that up and she's picked it up and she's running with it mm-hmm. she's still doing work with that so any formal conversations are taking place through the research network there is a lot of networking between the universities, though. Um, so there's things like training conferences or mock conferences, whatever they're called, in the various um, institutions. Um, were um, They're open to the public, so they're shared between the universities. There's different forums that um, we're part of, for example, where the universities get together, the interpreting departments of the universities get together, um, exchange information develop joint projects we're, we're actually that's actually very nice in the uk i have to say that there is good cooperation and support you know when certain universities don't offer a language they'll send it like i will send people for example to london met if we don't offer that particular language and they will send them to us and vice versa so you know there is good cooperation it, it that's something that's very nice in the uk now, I'd, I'd be interested in your um sort of look into the future, into the crystal ball, if you will. Um, how do you think, um, first of all, um, the university segment or, or university training for interpreters, it will how will it change? Um, because, for example, I mean, Erasmus is going to go away. There's going to be maybe a replacement program. But of course, you know, staying abroad is, is, is key for interpreters and translators. Um, and other challenges are ahead as well, I suppose. So how, how do you think things will develop? Well, a lot of the interpreter training we do in the UK is at MA level, and that didn't benefit very much from Erasmus programs. It, that didn't really benefit, so, um, you know, bring that much benefit for students. But um, I think what is definitely changing in the interpreting profession, when I started teaching interpreting, I used to get very frustrated because of the lack of um, sort of real life training, I used to call it. And I, I know I was, you know, often deemed to be sort of not research active enough because I was so focused on the the practical side. But my feeling was always, I can't send that student out into the world of interpreting to theorize about interpreting, but they actually need to be able to do it. And I think the balance is much better now. The balance between the research side of things and the academic side of things but the practical approach as well. And that's something that we didn't have when I started out over 20 years ago. Um, universities are managing to really cater for that much more across the board in the UK now. And, and this is not me f- sort of flogging it. It's It's been years of hard work mm. of so-called practice searchers trying to get into um, everyone's mind that interpreting is a practical skill and you you need to do it to be able to do it. You need to learn how to do it. Hmm. I actually remember when I was training about 12 years ago, the theory was good and the practice was good, but there wasn't always the connection. Mm-hmm. And because our, our, our theory teacher was uh, Professor Ian Mason, who's a fantastic translation theorist, not a brilliant expert on interpreting, certainly not a practice expert on interpreting. Um, and I believe now that a lot more of, I mean, I have to say this about research because that's what I do, but a lot more interpreting research is now so practice-based that the two are coming together much more than they ever did before. Um, And I remember when I wrote my first book, I was really keen on, you know, why are interpreters not hearing theory? And actually, they are now, and and I I get to talk, you know, get the pleasure of speaking for universities now, and it's evident that the students really know not just what they're talking about, but they know the practical ways of putting that into practice as well. And that that's really a, a testimony to some incredible teachers. 
But that is because it has a link to reality now much more. That's what we have to say. You know, students can see the point of looking at quality and simultaneous interpreting because it has an impact on what they do. So, and I think that was the important step that was missing this, this sort of overlap. But I'm also talking about the institutions as such, because I think the hardest thing um, to make clear to a university is that this is an academic course. It is an MA, but it has to have the practical aspects. And quite honestly, that's why I moved to my current university, because they were the first ones that listened um, to me and gave me the facilities that we needed, the proper interpreting booths and so on, so that I was able to train people ready for the real world. And that that's why I went for a year to try it out. And I travel a hundred miles round trip every time I go there. And I'm still there 10 years later because they made it possible for me to teach it in the way that I felt it needed to be taught in. And it was great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, honestly, it's, it's, you know, Jonathan and I always had this discussion about uh, research and the practical side of it. And I actually went to Euclid because it was so very hands-on at the time. But then we also got that sort of academic push to do the research and to, to kind of get into that. How much you get into it is then still up to you. So I'm still working on that part. But, but it's, a, it's definitely a good mix, for sure. We'll get the Alexis of PhDs yet. <laughs> oh, <no>. maybe. <laughs> Stop trying, Jonathan. <laughs> oh, goodness. Never going to give you. you Sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> your daily dose of Rick rolling there. I love that. <laughs> but um, we, I, I was kind of forcing um, Kirsty to give some future predictions. But Paul, I, I want to hear something from you as well. I mean, not necessarily uh, predictions, maybe, but um, maybe you can share. A wish for you know what what's is there something you'd really like to see this year happening to the profession or to to ITI maybe? Uh, to the profession, I would like to see. I mean, we we speak about recovery. I would like to see consolidation rather than recovery, because in 2020, obviously, some people found it very very hard. As I said, some people in certain sectors had no work at all if they were sports interpreters, translators, for instance. Um, but many people did well in what they were doing and in the way that they adapted to things. Some people have children at home, they've been home learning. Some people have had to go out and buy equipment, get better internets and what have you. But they've done that and they are continuing to work. And again, anecdotally, um, membership has held up quite nicely. Uh, that which means that people are confident in what they are doing and they are confident in the fact that there is a future in what they are doing. Um, that's demonstrated also in the fact that we have got elections for the ITI board coming up and we announce the candidates next week and we have five candidates for two positions. Oh, that's wonderful. Which wow. means that there is, yeah. that's exactly what we want. We want people who are enthusiastic about what they're doing and they're enthusiastic enough also about the industry that they're working in. Um, there are younger candidates. There are people who are less young than they once were. Um, <laughs> there are translators, there are interpreters, um, and, but they are people who are interested in, because in, in, in there, in our industry. So it's about consolidation. That's what I'd like to see happening in 2021 and ITI putting that flag on again, has got our wonderful community uh, more generally. And I'd like to see us continuing to work together. And I'd like to see us really being at the forefront of this consolidation process. There, blow that trumpet. 
<laughs> that's that's wonderful. <laughs> well, listen, listen, Kirsty and Paul, it, it was great to it has been great to to have you both here uh, on this episode to dive uh, take a deep dive basically into a very specific market that has a lot of yeah <laughs> a lot of uh, that, that reminds me of the of the swan thing as you know it's wildly padding paddling below the the water and uh, look looking gracious ab above the water but in any case thanks uh, so much for joining us um today for this as i said for this deep dive um into a market that has a lot of challenges at the moment but um I took I took away a lot of optimism from both of you, so so that's been great, um, and I hope that um, our listeners will will take away that optimism as well. If you have any feedback on the situation in the UK market, feel free to uh, let us know on social media or via email hello at troubleturps.com. If you can, feel free to support us um, financially. Uh, for transcripts that we want to make available for our episodes. You can do that uh, right on our website. Uh, the link is also in the podcast player that you're using right now to listen to this very episode. And with that, we're signing off for tonight and uh, we'll see you for the next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>